Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held is brought to you by Lean Cuisine. I've got a lot of opinions, and here's one. Sesame is everything, especially the sesame chicken from Lean Cuisine's Marketplace line, which is made with the kind of ingredients that I like to keep in my own kitchen. Natural chicken, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. Visit leancuisine.com backslash refinery29 for a coupon code. And feed your phenomenal with Lean Cuisine. From Refinery29, this is Strong Opinions Loosely Held. I'm Elisa Kreisinger. Welcome to the last episode of Season 2. We would love to come back for a Season 3 if you'll have us. But the one thing that really helps us come back are reviews and tweets. So if you'd like us to come back for a Season 3, please let us know in either of those places. We love making this podcast, and if you've enjoyed it too, let us know. And if you haven't, let us know about that too. Recognizing sexism at work used to be pretty cut and dry. I think anyone would be equally interested in the price per unit, which could be reduced significantly if the demand were higher. Why aren't you in the brassiere business? Excuse me? You should be in the bra business. Your work of art. But now it's more subtle. It's being interrupted by a male colleague during a meeting. It's reading Lean In only to implement the title and be called aggressive. It's walking the tightrope between confident and cocky. It's worrying about being nice, but not too nice that you're a pushover. It's working twice as hard to prove you're just as good. And if you're a woman of color, that means usually working three, four, or five times as hard. It happens to all of us, no matter how far along you are in your career. It happened to Senator Kamala Harris as she questioned Jeff Sessions during his testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Sir, uh, I'm not asking about the principle. I'm asking when well, you, you would be asked these the questions and you would rely on that policy, Chairman, did you yeah. not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for you refusing to answer the Chairman, majority of questions that have been be asked you? allowed to answer the question. Not only was Senator Harris interrupted and chided by Senator John McCain, She was then cut off by Senator Richard Burr. Senator Harris, let him answer. Please do. Uh, Thank you. It happened to Ariana Huffington at an Uber staff meeting about changing the company's sexist culture. When it was suggested that Uber add another woman to their board of directors, Huffington was interrupted with a sexist joke. There is a lot of data that shows that when there is one woman on the board, it's much more likely that there will be a second woman on the board. Actually, what it shows is it's much likely to be more talking. Yes, that is Ariana Huffington being interrupted with a sexist joke. Actually, what it shows is it's much likely to be more talking. In a meeting about combating sexist workplace culture. It's the emotional labor of subtle sexism that kind of makes you feel like you're crazy. So how do you survive being man-interrupted, passed over, and side-eyed 
even when Senator Kamala Harris and Ariana Huffington have to put up with it at work. These things are constant on a daily basis, and they add up. Taken together, this subtle sexism, it can be harder to call out. And so it's very easy to be like, eh, this wasn't that big a deal. Maybe this was my fault. What we're seeing more of now is discussion of the subtle ways that sexism still exists in modern workplaces of all kinds. And the more we talk about it, the more you can recognize it in your own place of work. I'm Jessica Bennett. I am a contributing writer at The New York Times and the author of Feminist Fight Club, a survival manual for a sexist workplace. I began my career at Newsweek. I was a young junior reporter. I'd grown up in this very liberal Seattle family where, you know, of course, my parents were like, you can do anything you set your mind to. And then I went to college and excelled in college, like I think so many young women do. And then I got to the workplace and I felt so lucky to be at Newsweek. You know, journalism is not an easy industry to find a full time paying job in. And I had. And then I realized that I wasn't rising up as quickly as my male colleagues and and neither were my female colleagues. And so we sort of started huddling in corners and going out to lunches and meeting in the ladies room where all good revolutions start and talking about the fact that we were frustrated and why was it that these guys were rising up the masthead more quickly than us and and how could we track it and were they actually making more money than us also which ultimately we found out they were one day i walked back to my desk and it turned out that one of the librarians in in the research department had heard that there were rumblings of this and he left a book on my desk and it had a chapter in it. It was a book from the 1970s written by Susan Brown Miller, the feminist scholar. And it had a chapter with a little post-it note to it that he had set there that was about the women of Newsweek who in the year 1970 had sued the company for gender discrimination. And my cohort of women, this was in 2010, had no idea that this lawsuit had happened. We started frantically Googling and of course, nothing was on the internet because this happened long ago and it was before this case had reemerged. But this lawsuit had happened and it was landmark. Women had not sued for gender discrimination before, and it essentially paved the way for women to be journalists. Because at the time, the women at Newsweek were told that, you know, you can get a job here, you can do all the same things that the men can, but you will not get a byline because women don't write at Newsweek. Department heads, Jonathan, Mark, Wilbur, all men. Reporters, Douglas, Marshall, Samuel, more men. So, you're never going to get your name on this page. You good with that? So how was it that 40 years later, and we were coming upon an anniversary, which in our journalistic minds was like, ding, 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 there's a peg for a story there. We had no idea. This had been completely lost and forgotten. Nobody in the office knew. We were like running around the office being like, oh my God, oh my God, have you read this? Did you know this happened? And nobody knew. None of the women there knew. None of the women, none of the high up editors. The, one of our male editors was like, I think there was maybe a Supreme Court case about this. Like, nobody knew. And so we decided to write a piece about it, looking at what had happened then, coming upon the 40th anniversary of the lawsuit, and looking at what had changed. Now, how did you pitch Newsweek on an idea for a story reminding people that they had a problem about sexism in their workplace at 
their publication and publishing it at the very same publication that you are critiquing. We reported it in secret is how. Much in the same way those women 40 years prior had been huddling and meeting in secret, we started reporting and we didn't tell our editors we're doing it. We would make up excuses. We would go to long lunches. And eventually we tracked down the original women from the suit and we wrote a draft. And then we submitted a draft with the help of a gay male editor who became our editor on the piece without our names on it. And I think there was a lot of shock that went around and people wanted to know who had written it. But we made a point, we had all of these little subtle tactics. We made a point of putting it into our system that everyone could see publicly so that anyone could read the piece. And we thought that if the other young women around the office could read the piece as well, they would support us. And in fact, they did. And a lot of the young men did as well. And so then basically for the next six months, it was like a struggle of like, are you going to publish this? Are you not going to publish this? Are we going to have to take this elsewhere? Like, should we be threatening? Should we not threaten? Like, at the end of the day, we thought that this actually made Newsweek look good to look critically at itself and to recognize the power of that history. But by the same token, you know, we did lots of surveys of bylines and of cover images and, and something like all but two of the 46 cover stories that year had been written by men. So the numbers were not good, and they were, in fact, not a lot better than the time of the lawsuit in 1970. But eventually they decided to print it, and they printed it with our names on it. Wow. And and it came out. And, and, um, and then Lynn Povich, who was one of those original women from the lawsuit, who was the first female senior editor at Newsweek, she was working on a book about that suit. And so she kind of bookended the book, the introduction and the conclusion with our story. And then, of course, Amazon made a series, which now sadly is canceled, out of that book. The now canceled series, Good Girls Revolt, which used to show on Amazon, it was about a trio of female journalists in the late 1960s fighting for equality in the newsroom. A lot of what we were facing was this kind of subtle sexism. It wasn't overt. It wasn't what our mothers had faced. It wasn't somebody telling us we couldn't be writers or that we they weren't going to pay us the same amount or grabbing our ass. It was, in fact, telling us we could, of course, accomplish the same things as all the guys, but then not giving us opportunities or us pitching an idea and having the credit go to a man. And specifically in journalism, such a subjective field You can always argue, like, that guy is a better writer than you. And so over and over and over again, you're pitching story ideas and you're writing stories and then a man's getting to actually do the work and getting the credit and you're thinking, like, do I actually just suck at this? Like, should I leave journalism? Am I just bad? And so it's very easy to internalize a lot of this stuff. And for me, what finally became very concrete was when I found out that a male colleague who was a friend who had the same job title was making something like $10,000 more than me. He, in fact, had told me how much he was making, which I think is important. I think it's important to talk about salary. He was horrified, and he encouraged me to ask for more, which I then went in and did. We did the same exact job. To me, that was a concrete thing that I could say, there's data behind this. We are making different amounts. Here are all of the things I have accomplished this year, and you need to make us commensurate. Prior to that, it was a lot of this mushy stuff, you know, like not being heard when you speak, like feeling uncomfortable in meetings, feeling like you don't belong, not getting credit for your ideas, being interrupted, imposter syndrome, all of this stuff that you hear about where you're like, "Eh, it's hard to prove. And if it's hard to prove, it's hard to call out. 
So what advice would you give to women who have observed or worked in sexist behavior and sexist offices, but convince themselves that it wasn't that big of a deal? It's what everybody has to deal with. Talk to other women. That was the utility of my feminist fight club. It allowed me to realize it wasn't just me. It was all of us. And together we could feel like we were trying to combat something as a group. Truly, you will stop questioning yourself and you will have someone there to be like, no, you're not crazy. This happened. Forming alliances is really important, whether that's with other women or with men as well. I also think just knowing that we tend to have some of these behaviors. There, When Lean In came out, there was this big debate about, is this putting the onus on women to change their behavior? Women shouldn't have to change their behavior. Like, we shouldn't have to do any of this stuff. But the reality is that, especially right now, do I have trust in the political system to solve these problems? Nope. So I want to have battle tactics or tools at my disposal while we hopefully can continue to fight for structural change and, and change on a larger level. Sheryl Sandberg wrote a piece for the New York Times about how women are interrupted more than men. And after that came out, I was doing a column for Time magazine and decided to do kind of a service piece that was, here are 10 ways to stop a man interrupter. And so I basically added the word man to interrupter, like not an original thing. We all know mansplaining the term has existed. But this article, which had tools for how to stop a man interrupter, really simple things like telling them to stop interrupting you, or if you see someone else being interrupted, chiming in on that person's behalf to let them get a word in. It, of course, went viral in a second and continues to be the most read thing that I've ever written, which is somewhat depressing because you spend like months writing these articles and then you put together this piece in a couple of hours, throw it online, and it's the most read thing ever. But what happened was an artist on the internet took the piece and then created a series of illustrations out of it that were all fight moves for how to stop a man interrupter. And so suddenly it was like, okay, I actually can really see this. There could be a book in this that is easy to understand, uses millennial fun language, maybe makes you laugh and is illustrated, but is also really practical. And so I thought back to my experience you know, coming up in, in really mainstream traditional media and not really having any kind of toolkit for how to face some of this stuff and wishing that this book existed when I began my career. So why don't male bosses and male colleagues get it? And why is their short-sightedness our problem to solve? I asked a male boss, David Bloom. I just want to know what's inside the meeting with the door closed with all white men. That that is what you're you're here for me today to do. What's what what goes through when you guys are all hanging out in a meeting? People, so, you're laughing. So what are you guys little. talking about? This is not what we talk about. My name is David Bloom. I am the director and head of product at The Wirecutter, recently acquired by The New York Times. In my career, I've run my own startup. I've worked for big companies and nonprofits, and I have an MBA. In that meeting with all white men, where we're thinking about promoting someone or we're thinking about hiring someone, we do not acknowledge the elephant in the room. Almost never, except sometimes someone says, well, I don't know. I mean, it's five of us here on the executive team, and wouldn't it be great if we had a woman? But then the question then, <clears throat> everyone clears their throat and says, why, yes, that's super important. But if you look at the qualifications of these candidates, who do you think is going to help the business achieve? And then you quickly sort of fade back 
from that, that one person who raised their hand to say, shouldn't we be worrying about this, is quickly, you know, silenced. Almost always. When a woman walks in and asks for a raise or asks for a title bump, is she seen as a bitch? Is she seen as too much? The research says that that happens way more often than it doesn't happen, right? Yeah. That a woman, whether it's the tone of her voice, which you've talked about on the show, or the way she asks, or just the bias that a individual may have, like, it all plays a role. I, I've never been in a, in a situation where a bunch of guys were sitting around and complaining about this conversation. If anything, uh, they want to avoid the whole conversation because they don't know how to engage. They don't want to say the wrong thing. I think that's actually a real part of the problem here is that you know, a lot of guys who try to engage are clumsy at it because they don't know the vocabulary. They have, they're, not, they're not as immersed in the issues as a woman coming to the table would be. So they say something clumsy and then they feel like they get shouted down. Or you just don't want to bring it up because you're not comfortable with the conversation. What would happen if you or someone brought it up? I think you would get a lot of head nodding like, yeah, mm, yes, this is a real problem. But when you actually got into solutions, there would be crickets. Like, what am I, well, you know, what am I supposed to do? Like, I, I just deal with the resumes that come across my desk. Or she didn't ask for a promotion and he did. And yeah. I had a slot. So gave it to the ambitious person. It's too easy not to actually do the right stuff. So we're not even having enough of the conversation. But then getting to the level of actually doing something about it, like, it certainly isn't part of my day-to-day -day dude manager conversation. There's so much advice out there and think pieces about this topic that you would think male colleagues or male managers and male bosses would either be reading it or at least would kind of get it. They might be able to see or understand a little bit more about the intricacies of being a woman in the workplace and how they contribute to it and, and how they can be better allies. But it seems like that's not happening. Why do you think male bosses and male colleagues don't get it? Yeah. Why, ha why has anything changed? Uh, I, I think nothing has changed because it's too easy for things not to change, mm -hmm. right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're just weak human beings and we just follow, you know, the mistakes of our elders. Why is it on women to identify and solve the problem of the wage gap and gender equality? Why aren't we talking to men, training male bosses, training male managers to fix the wage gap and gender equality? Why do we put it on women? You know, I think the burden falls to women, frankly, because it affects them more personally. When I'm the boss and I have a workplace that doesn't support or encourage women and leads to, you know, just having a bunch of white guys work for me, it hurts my business, but not in ways that are obvious and in my face. It's like the dog that doesn't bark. Maybe I've missed a market opportunity or I didn't get the best possible hire I could, but I don't feel that cost right away. But when a woman doesn't get a promotion or doesn't get a job or doesn't get a raise, they feel that in that moment. So, of course, they're more likely to advocate for themselves and recognize these issues and want to make a change. And the guy is going to be like, ugh, this is just one more thing I got to deal with. So the resistance builds up. And that's why all these conversations fall disproportionately on women. You know, then you go to publish a book and your publishers are like, well, men don't buy books. Women buy books. So target your book at women. And so you're like, all right, but like what about the men? They're actually the ones who, who need to read this. And so then you go on a book tour and all over the country you're like preaching to the choir to groups of women who do not need to know any of this because they are living. I get asked a lot, how do we bring men into the conversation? And I actually think that 
most men really want to be engaged. They just don't know how. They're like afraid to say something wrong. Like they don't know how, you know, whatever. They're they're afraid of screwing up. But often open lines of communication can be really effective. In a lot of the more flexible modern workplaces, when you're dealing with like clueless people who may not be bad people, but they just don't know what to do, I think trying to have a dialogue is important. One of the things that I think this conversation around gender equality and access to professional opportunity would benefit from is a little bit more empathy. Like everyone just needs to chill out and understand that it's really hard to have these conversations. It's really hard to be the boss, to be the guy who feels like, I know I'm missing something. I know something's wrong. I'm probably part of the problem. So I'm going to try and I'm going to get hammered for trying. The issue for me is that it's a little scary. I both want to avoid doing the wrong thing and I want to do the right thing. I'm not sure how to do that. I want to, you know, I want to make sure that I'm actually doing it and not just talking about it. So this is a really fraught issue. And I have like a wife who's practically a professional feminist and I've taken all the right classes to make myself more in line. I've read the studies. Like I know quantitatively why this is a big deal. And it's really hard for me. I can easily imagine why it was. it's so hard for other guys that they just don't want to talk about it. Like they don't even know how to engage. Right. So that is real. And I think that is why guys, when they're sitting around the bar after work and they're talking about their issues at work, this only comes up after two or three beers, mm-hmm. maybe. You know, and, and gender is one thing. Race takes us to a whole other level. You know, also, and, and like every other layering on like, this issue is bad for women. It's triply so for women of color. It's like you just keep layering on these issues and it gets harder and harder to have yeah. the conversation. It gets harder and harder to come up with solutions. That's why guys, I think, often avoid it. Right. But when we do think about it, we want to do the right thing. But I don't think we know how. Too often we don't know how. And too often we feel like it's just more work than we can bite off. We need to create a space for men, managers, to be okay with history. Like not feel like they're making up for generations or hundreds or thousands of years of misogynistic workplace environments. Like it's just too much for any individual to bite off. Like even if it's sort of generally socially true, it's just not constructive. Every guy needs to be given an opportunity to do the right thing. And I think what me as a boss does um, when I was CEO of my own company did, when I try and mentor younger people who are rising up through the ranks, what I always coach them on is doing the right thing in the moment going forward, not being dictated to by history. So I think we need to create safe spaces for guys to have these conversations and make mistakes and be wrong and be inarticulate about these issues and just fuck up sometimes. You know, one-on-one in a conference room with the door closed is way better to influence someone to do the right thing than a public setting because they may say the right thing in the public setting but feel that they were put on the spot and then they're uncomfortable and then they withdraw and then you don't get the outcome you want. One-on-one, a little bit of coaching, a little bit of guidance, when you do this, it makes me feel like this and therefore whatever goes a long way. But if we don't have safe space for these conversations where a boss can make mistakes and try and fail and be okay and not be ridiculed for it, we're never going to get there. We need, to be, we need to allow the guys to have this conversation too. 
what we're seeing more of now is discussion of the subtle ways that sexism still exists in in modern workplaces of all kinds. And the more we talk about it, the more you can recognize it in your own place of work. If we spent all of our time worrying about coming off as bitches, it's emotional labor that women have to do that men don't. I'm no longer going to worry if I come off like a bitch. Like, I'm just going to be a bitch then. Because the more bitches there are, the more we will realize that that's actually not bitchy. That's just like exhibiting leadership qualities and doing what you need to do to get shit done because we are all working people. If a man exhibited those very same qualities, we're not going to call him a dick or a bitch. It's just being assertive. For people who want to succeed professionally, usually they need to be relatively assertive. But when a man is assertive, it's just viewed as doing business or being good at their job. And, and of course, when a woman is assertive, she's viewed as a bitch. So if we can do all of these things, then I think the stereotypes will ultimately be worn down. Because if we're all acting like that, then it will just be normal, which isn't to say that we should have to act in an aggressive manner like there's actually a lot of research that shows that the female style of leadership which is often more warm is in fact more effective but like bottom line this is really complicated stuff and if you were to think about balancing this tricky line all the time you would just lose your mind so sometimes it's exhausting that's why there's jokes in the book so you can like (laughs) take a pause yeah and cocktail recipes Jessica and David had strong opinions about male bosses and surviving subtle sexism in your office. And now I want to hear yours. Are you so sick of putting up with the bullshit at work? Does your male boss ever get it? Do you have a female boss who also doesn't get it, thus negating this entire episode? Tweet me at popcultpirate or tag me in your posts on Instagram using at popculturepirate. This is our last episode for season two. And if you'd like a season three, please let us know. But in the meantime, you can always check out our video channel based on this podcast at facebook.com slash strong opinions loosely held. And please subscribe to Strong Opinions wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Sarah Bernard and edited by Carrie Ann Thomas for Refinery29. Special thanks to Kat Moldina for her research help. We recorded with Paul Ruest, and hopefully we'll see you back here for season three.